Data engineering is the software engineering that enables data scientists to work effectively. At least that's one way of putting it. In today's episode, we explore the different sides of data engineering, the data science algorithms that need to be processed, and the implementation of software architectural patterns that enable those algorithms to run smoothly. The Pancake Stack is a 12-letter acronym that Chris Fregley gave to a collection of data engineering technologies, including Presto, Cassandra, Kafka, Elasticsearch, and Spark. It's kind of hilarious. In this episode, I asked him to name the acronym, and he, he couldn't actually remember all the, na- all the uh, things in the stack. It's, I think it's a bit of irony. Because um, in his current life, Chris travels around the world giving workshops on how to deploy and use the technologies in the Pancake Stack. It's really more of a uh, superset of the technologies that you might need. It's just a wide collection of technologies you could build your data engineering stack with. Before he was doing these workshops, he was an engineer at Netflix, where he actually received an Emmy for Streaming Engineering Excellence. It's a really great episode. I greatly enjoyed talking to Chris. We had a great conversation about data engineering, the state of data engineering, all these different technologies and how they fit together. Um, A really wide-ranging conversation, too. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Chris Fregley is a research scientist with Pipeline IO. Chris, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you worked for several years at Netflix, and I want to start with some discussion of what you experienced with machine learning at Netflix. Netflix is obviously well known for its machine learning capability. And then we'll get into a conversation about architecture and um, what you are thinking about data pipelines today. So why don't you just Give me an overview for what you worked on in Netflix and what things you saw in terms of machine learning. Yeah, so I mean, uh, the reason they're so well known, you know, for their uh, like machine learning specifically is just the amount of data that they collect, right? The big joke is that they're a logging company that just happens to stream video, also, right? So they capture pretty much everything going on. Um, you know, they 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 capture all the data from uh, the devices and they you know merge that with uh, yeah, so my team was the streaming team, um, right? And then getting that data into the machine learning pipelines and uh, seeing, you know, yeah. So sort of end-to-end getting all that data in and then serving it back up. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it was just the, the scale and, you know, quantity of data going in there and then uh, working with the data scientists to actually, uh, right, like mine it and make uh, something useful, right? Like mainly recommendations, of course. So when you were working there, was there a lot of, um, was there a bigger community outside of Netflix where people were talking about these kinds of problems, this data streaming type problems, or was it more of an insular type of, um, you know, you had Amazon over in one corner, Netflix over in one corner, Google over in one corner? I mean, today it's obviously huge communities, but uh, was it more insular back then? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, this was what, 2010, 2011. Um, it was so, yeah, I remember having lots of calls with Amazon, but it was more about the cloud infrastructure and can we get, you know, 5,000 nodes, <laughs> you know, which was sort of unheard of at the time. Um, just making sure that, you know, they could uh, like keep up with us during peak times, right? Like after the Oscars, things like that. So um, I, I don't remember 
discussing too much with them about the Amazon, or right, like the machine learning side of things. Um, we definitely fed off of a lot of their papers and um, you know some of their item to item collaborative filtering stuff. That uh, there's a famous paper from them, I think, in 2003, um, how they basically couldn't scale the user to item, um, right, like type recommendations type. Um, yeah, and so they started doing more like item to item similarity type stuff, and um, yeah, so there was a lot of that going on, you know, but not really direct peer to peer. It was more just us kind of picking up papers and figuring out, yeah, what these other groups were doing. Spotify also has, uh, in I think towards the end of my Netflix days, we were uh, starting to kind of take cues off of them. Um, yeah, those Spotify guys do a lot of stuff. This guy Chris Johnson. Um, yeah, has a couple good uh, presentations and papers and things like that. It, so, and like with the Spotify for example, Spotify for example, it seems like that's a really great opportunity for information sharing because you're kind of working on the same problem yeah. in dis- disjoint domains. Is that accurate, or was there was there any bottlenecks to information flow between? The, the companies yeah you know and most times that like we would see those guys i mean it wasn't you know us uh sending them really emails directly or anything like that it was more you know we're pretty active and or right like we're and like still are those guys still do present quite a bit netflix and spotify um at like conferences right so these conferences seem like they're kind of fluffy and all that but there's a lot of stuff going on um back in that speaker lounge and that uh or, like that's something i realized when i started speaking i'm like yeah this is kind of a a whole separate group of people that, that you start to interact with, you know, and um, uh, you just go to each other's sessions and, you know, yeah, you can't usually get to them right, like right after because a million people go up and talk to them, but you'll see them in the lounge or see them walking around and say, hey, yeah, that was a great point. I'm going to start pulling some of that stuff into our flows, right? Like Uber, uh, they've been right, like kicking butt recently with their pipelines and um so they're actually building I, I love how open they are yeah yeah they're 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 open on some things and then closed on like others i, I yeah, so i've come <laughs> right. to realize this um you, you you definitely can't ask them so uh how does that surge pricing <laughs> totally <thing> work? <laughs> um yeah, they, there's. I think there's some sessions too where they've said no to the cameras and things like that. So you know, I'm not quite sure what what their restrictions are specifically um, for speaking. But um, yeah, like you can sort of glean from what they're presenting on, and and I don't see a whole lot of it make it out into the open source world. I mean, it's probably one of those things. Just like Netflix when they were first building all this stuff, it wasn't you know really really open source ready. Um, you kind of have to sit down and refactor everything and clean up all the code. Totally. Well, they they open sourced they open sourced Ring Pop, and it's like this this I don't know if you've looked at Ring Pop at all, but it's like this thing that's upon like first looking at your it might be like well, how the heck would I apply this to any problem except <laughs> Uber? And I'm sure it's going to be something that that will be broadly applicable in the future. But it's it's one of these things where you know the reason they had to roll their own thingy is because Uber faces challenges that are. Uh, you know, quite unique to sure. to Uber. I am, I imagine you know the same was same was probably true for Netflix in the, in the earlier days of the you know the streaming data pipeline. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm just checking out Ring Pop here. I actually was not aware of this. Um, yeah, I mean, specifically Netflix, we were, you know, pioneering things uh, within Amazon. And, you know, things like middle tier load balancers, you know, that, that were not public, right? Like all the the old, like original load balancers, the like ELBs and things like that. Yeah, right. So they were always public. So we needed a way to do service discovery, right? Like internally. And that's where uh, projects like Eureka uh, like came about. That's the really sort of internal load balancer uh, like service discovery stuff so sure um most of that so, stuff these days like you know is is pretty much uh just used I, I you know i think by netflix like uh i know a couple other projects have made it out like hystrix which is the circuit breaker that that's yeah that can be used anywhere basically but uh, some of the service discovery stuff there's a lot simpler ways to do it and um some of the really really high scale things like if an entire region goes down right like that's handled by the netflix eureka but really not a lot of people have those issues <laughs> so or really care to solve those issues right now anyway so i think there are, there are like two angles that I think are interesting to discuss uh, in terms of your work and what you are evangelizing these days. I think there's there's the 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 discussion around the algorithms that you use to do machine learning and to do scalable machine learning and these different ensembling strategies, these strategies of combining different machine learning recommend, recommendation strategies that have been around for a while. There's also the conversation around all the different technologies that you can use to implement these algorithms. So I want to like talk about both of these different areas um, and maybe jump back and forth between them so listeners can hopefully get a feeling for the connection between these two sets of discussions. You know, you mentioned the that Amazon paper around uh, collaborative filtering, how collaborative filtering, I guess, could not scale at a certain point in you know, this is one thing I like about your talks is you have these different anecdotes about, you know, these discoveries that have come out in the last 10 years and these papers and things like that. Just as an example, because I think it's, you know, I, I got interested, you were talking about it. What, what, what was net or what was Amazon doing that didn't scale, and what uh, what did they write about in that paper? Because I actually haven't read that. I I, I read some of the Dynamo paper, um, mm-hmm. and that that's a, that's a really good one. But what maybe you could just tell that anecdote about what Amazon was doing and why it didn't scale. Yeah, I mean, I think the gist, and I'm just pulling it up here just to kind of uh, like remind myself. Um, the uh, the right, like general gist of it was there product catalog wasn't increasing that much, right? But there, so, right, like when I joined Netflix, for example, there were only 30,000 movies, but there were 20 million customers, right? Um, so with Amazon, uh, right, like, uh, so that was 2010. Um, they were dealing with this back in 2003 where their sort of item, the columns in your matrix factorization were steady, you know, so skinny. And then it was just growing, 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 uh, right, like down, I guess, the, you know, y-axis down the rows uh, for the number of users. So um, what they realized was that they could actually simplify and, and start to make recommendations between items, right? Like versus using the like collaboration between user and item, you could sort of start to do similars, um, right? Like between items and sort of cluster items and things like that. So 
Um, the second benefit of that, right, like besides the actual processing, the it, it's like less processing time, um, right, like less CPU time. Because what was happening was these matrix factorizations were taking you know more than 24 hours, right, and so it couldn't really keep up with uh, when users would log back in. And um, so the second benefit for the item to item is that you can now start to surface you know stapler and staples and some of the the you know not so obvious things based on just metadata, right, like just so the name of the paper is uh, like Amazon.com Recommendations Item-to-Item Collaborative Filtering. So this is the first time where, you know, because uh, most of the time you think of user-to-item collaborative filtering, but this is actually item-to-item. So, so the, the, the idea is that you have, uh, instead of just taking users and looking at, uh, okay, user bought, uh, you know, user A bought a stapler, um, and also bought staples, and user B bought a stapler, we should recommend staples to user B. Uh, you can just look at staple stapler and then look at some features within that product, or however the product is enumerated, and and then you will also, you can also do a comparison. You can, you can compare the stapler uh, matrix or vector to the staples vector, and you will find enough similarities that it makes sense to uh, to to recommend the the sta- staples to the stapler uh, stapler browser or wh- whoever is whoever is purchasing a stapler. Right, right. Yeah, so I think it's interesting because you know you talk about these similarity calculations that you have to run because you know in in any of these types of operations, you have to vectorize mm-hmm. the unit that you're talking about. Whether you're talking about a user or you're talking about a product, you're talking about a movie, all of these things have to, so you know, if the listener is not super familiar with machine learning, all of these things have to be turned into vectors so you can basically do these numerical calculations in Cartesian space. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting because you, you talk about how to do this at scale because you know if you need to run it, for example in the uh, the products you know if you need to to to, cal- to calculate the recommend the closest recommendation between stapler uh, and all other products that is an infeasible thing to be doing at scale so you have to do these for example approximation exactly. strategies to be, to be to be able to speed up this type of comparison can you talk about that a bit how do you what are these approximation strategies how do you do this type of uh, collaborative filtering or just vector comparison at scale? Yeah, so once you actually have the vectors, uh, the sort of naive brute force way would just be to compare right, like each item to all the other items, right? And then surface the you know top 100 for, for each item. Um, yes, obviously that's Cartesian. Uh, for 30,000 items, that's not too, too bad. But when you start expanding right, like beyond that, things um, really get pretty hairy. So uh, yeah, there's these techniques. The most common one uh, that, that we see, I saw this at like Databricks quite a bit too when I was working with them. Uh, there were right, like lots of customers coming to us that once they could get to all their data within Spark, uh, right, like now they wanted to you know find similarities. So they so they first would like vectorize everything, right? So each item they could represent with some some vector of right, like doubles, and then. Um, but they very quickly would just kill their Spark cluster, or they would, you know, go from eight nodes to sixteen to thirty-two, to, you know, and it's still it was taking hours and hours to do this this huge Cartesian. 
Um, so you can essentially do one pass through all of the items and bucket them, right? And there's, uh, yeah, so that's the sort of intuition behind LSH, locality-sensitive hashing. That's the uh, really main one that we see. Um, so rather than doing a full comparison, you do just like you throw bucket, them into buckets. Right, and then you do full comparison within each bucket. So the mm-hmm. sort of intuition is that you do one pass through um, the – there's a Twitter uh, – really, uh, what's the library? Algebraid. Yeah, so Twitter Algebraid has um, this built in. And actually, I have a couple demos off my – Really, GitHub repo, the Flux capacitor GitHub repo, um, that that shows locality sense of hashing, and I'm using Twitter's Algebraid. And there's uh, this technique called min hashing. So you go through and and for each item create a min hash signature, and you give it the number of buckets right beforehand, and it it's going to go through and um, so the uh, yeah. So there's two benefits to that. There's you sort of decrease the size of each bucket, right? So, uh, which is then going to um, be passed into Cartesian, or yeah. So, per bucket, those items get compared Cartesian-wise, right? But those buckets are much much smaller. And then, if you only have fifty, yeah. So let's say that you can simplify it down to fifty buckets. Now you can do all fifty in parallel. If you have fifty nodes, for example, fifty worker nodes on your Spark cluster, so. Yeah, the overall computation goes down. Um, it's a little tough to to sort of validate, uh, you know, really how many buckets, and you, you sort of have to eyeball it from a human standpoint when you get the results. You know, that's the uh, downside of any kind of clustering or any sort of approximation stuff is not unless you actually do spend the time to run the full brute force, can you compare it and say, oh, okay, you know, yeah, I was within this much uh, Riley confidence uh, value from, from Riley the exact, uh, yes, if you were doing uh, Riley cosine similarity, for example. So that's typically what you would do if you had a vector and just, just did brute force. You would use cosine similarity in this vector yeah. space. So, so this... this um this hashing strategy, this bucketing strategy, um, how how do how are those buckets made? What are you doing the hashing? Like, what are you what are you hashing the components yeah. uh, based on? And exactly, uh, yeah. So you, yeah, what you're doing. I mean, you could feed in. Uh, so let's see, how does my demo do it here? You could basically feed in anything, right, to it, and say, take. Uh, so I'm just giving it the raw vectors, um, and uh, yeah, I'm actually rolling my uh, demo server because I have a workshop tomorrow, so I'm yeah, making sure everything. So ah. yeah, my demo's not up right now, but. Um, yeah, you can feed it like essentially any uh, sort of um, set of features, and then it it's going to crunch that and basically hash it. And what? And yeah, so you can provide the number of buckets. You can provide. Um, what's the other? Let me just pull up Twitter's algebra here. So, so are you saying that when you run this hashing this hashing function on each of the different vectors, they will get bucketed? Uh, or they, the the output of the hash function will be similar to uh, exactly. across each other, and so they will get bucketed similarly. Yeah. So the features that huh. you pass in, the more similar they are, the uh, the and each item can end up actually in like multiple buckets as well. 
So yeah, that's the other key is that it's not like an exclusive single bucket output. Fascinating. So uh, just out of curiosity, are you able to, can you just do some kind of uh, similarity matching between the output of the hashing function? Is that useful at all? Or do you need to do the um, feature by feature comparison of the vectors? Oh, yeah, no. So you would bucket. Um, oh, oh, yes, I see what you're saying. So once it's uh, bucketed, could you just right, like just return right, like whatever's in the bucket, right? Um, yeah, yes, I suppose you could do that. It would be pretty f- uh, coarse grained. Um, right, pretty coarse. <laughs> yeah, that's actually interesting. I, I haven't yeah. taken a look at the specific output of the buckets i typically just pipe it right into the cartesian brute force within buckets sure but Hmm. yeah okay that would be a uh interesting experiment yeah yeah Mm um so you know i'm curious uh, about something else at netflix because we've done a couple shows about this netflix data pipeline i think they call it keystone Mm -hmm. um and it's evolved from version i think version one to version two to now version three how much of that pipeline were you at Netflix for, and how ha- how have you yeah. seen that pipeline evolve? Yeah, it's funny because I was there right around um, the beginnings of two o and two five. Um, the The big shift was moving away from Chukwa, right, which was kind of like Kafka, um, sort of like an older version. Uh, yeah, so Netflix had a couple committers on the uh, like Chukwa project, so. Just seeing that put into place, um, right, like Kafka getting in there. And then right now they're still using SAMSA just because Kafka plus SAMSA is a pretty powerful combo. Uh, that's what like LinkedIn uses. And I, I believe Netflix actually hired someone from uh, like LinkedIn fairly early on, um, I think around the uh, 2.5 to 3.0, which is Keystone days. So they just kept that combination in place. They've been trying Spark streaming here and there, um, but it's pretty heavy SAMSA right now for right, like a lot of the super critical log collection. Um, what about, I mean, what about Kafka streams? Uh, I guess this is getting into the architectural uh, side of things, but we had a show recently about Kafka streams. Um, do you know if you can get the, the functionality that you would have wanted out of, you know, Kafka plus Samza from just Kafka and Kafka streams? Yeah. So I was at Strata this week um, out here in like New York, and um, there was a lot, a lot of Kafka talk, uh, a lot of Beam talk too as well. Not sure if you've mm. been paying attention to that. Oh, yeah. I did a show about that. Right on. Right on. Yeah. Um, it's funny because we're starting to see more and more Google guys come out of, you know, behind the Google firewall and <laughs> yes. starting to talk. And they've got a lot to say, man. They, you know, and yes, I talked to them quite a bit because I know a lot of the TensorFlow guys over there and a lot of the, uh, just right, like Beam guys and all that. But they looked worn out by the end of it because they were doing workshops. They were doing, you know, at the like AMAs, Ask Me Anything. They were, um, you know, just, yeah. Uh, so, the yeah kafka streams um is pretty interesting and actually rightly sort of related i haven't seen too much with beam and and kafka streams so i someone is it beam compliant i don't you know what it it would depend on if there's a runner uh that's built right and i don't think there is um and sort of interestingly enough, the Spark streaming runner was built by Cloudera. Uh, not really seeing too much support from the Databricks guys on that. 
um, my hunches that they're, you know, spread a little thin. That was, uh, my feeling back when I was there is that, you know, the open source side of things is, uh, pretty fixed and they're sort of growing on the, you know, product side of things. But, um, so they don't have a whole lot of time for a lot of these sort of, uh, auxiliary projects and things like that. But well, if, if I were any of these, these cloud provider companies like Cloudera or, uh, or Databricks, um, I mean, maybe this is paranoia, but I would be quite paranoid about the whole Beam thing and be like, "Oh my God, oh. Google is gonna Google is gonna take <laughs> all of my business." Yeah, yeah. Wow. So one thing I actually heard this week. Um, this is actually more related to the right, like TensorFlow stuff. But for TensorFlow Distributed, there's they have a Mesos. Um, so it's been pretty heavy Kubernetes, right? Like the yeah, so those projects have, you know, so Beam, Kubernetes, and then TensorFlow are the three big projects that. Yes. Yeah. So Google's been like representing, and um, they're they're all sort of you know connected, right? Like definitely, uh, right? Like TensorFlow and then Kubernetes, but now they're coming out with a Mesos uh, like schedule orchestrator as well. So, and that's coming out of Google um, plus the Mesosphere guys. So they're starting to like kind of open up. They said a yarn one might be in the works. They don't really have too much input on uh, like the yarn side of things, but I think the Mesos one is going to come out um, pretty soon. But yeah, man, this, this beam stuff, I mean, it's a good play by Google, right? They, they, they want people to start using their uh, like cloud platform and what better way than right, like to open source some of these key technologies and get people interested and in, right, like, yes. Oh, by the way, it works best on, you know, Google. Cloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very clever. And one thing, you know, I, I'm starting to notice, they have a pretty limited developer advocacy group. And I, I think all this stuff kind of hit them all at once where, um, I mean, right. Like literally, I mean, down to the O'Reilly media people, like, yes, they're having problems finding people to do TensorFlow books and, you know, video series, um, right. Like things like that. It's just tough to get these guys. Right. I mean, I've been trying to get them to come speak at my meetup, the advanced spark TensorFlow meetup in San Francisco. They, you know, they're, they're scheduling out till, uh, really April and May of probably 2017 and stuff. So, wow. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's a, a, a sort of maybe, you know, um, so it's always the same people that I see at, at, at these conferences and, and right, these meetups and things talking. So I, I think they're spread pretty thin too, and maybe weren't prepared for a lot of the open source, uh, community, you know, uh, like type evangelism. I think before maybe they were just doing a little bit of light cloud, uh, like developer advocacy, but mm. yeah, they're starting to pull some of these engineers out and right. Like these guys just want to code. <laughs> yeah. That was my impression after uh, this week I was talking to them. They're like, yeah, I I'm so far behind on my, you know, milestones for this week and stuff. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so we, the question the question I was trying to ask the you know I did I did a couple shows with Dataflow people I had mm-hmm. Tyler, um, Tyler Tyler yeah. no no not Tyler I'm um, sorry Francis Perry and um, uh, gosh Eric Anderson on the show and we were talking about Dataflow and Beam and what I didn't understand was if you're gonna if you're gonna run a Beam compliant uh, streaming workflow why would you use why would you have it run on anything other than Dataflow? Why would you have it run on on Flink or mm-hmm. uh, Spark Streaming or whatever else? Yeah. 
what's tricky too is you know spark streaming doesn't implement all of those uh you know and i think it it, it depends on the person building the runner, right? Like the adapter um, to sort of shim, you know, some of those features like the triggering and the windowing. And, um, and yeah, actually there was a, f- a Flink demo this week uh, as part of the Beam workshop that I attended. There was a Flink guy, um, right? Like Jamie Greer, who's in San Francisco. He's sort of the data artisan, uh, right? Like liaison um, uh, came from Twitter. Uh, but yeah, there was this this bug that was in the Flink runner that that like essentially like disabled triggering, and we couldn't figure out how. Really, yeah, I mean, no one found this, so just kind of weird things pop up. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it sort of gives you the illusion that that like you can switch from one to the other, but I mean, really, like you're going to choose the one that that supports all the features and um, yeah has the best integration with the sort of master spec. Yeah, the beam mm. spec, right? Uh, well, anyway, we should uh, we should obviously get back to uh, <laughs> stuff more related to what you're talking about. But oh. I, I love I love talking about this. Yeah, I mean Kafka streams. Yeah, so back to that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the you know I yes I've I talked to quite a few people about uh, right, like Kafka streams and you know really people want to use Spark streaming because of Spark ML and. Uh, they already have a lot of stuff, uh, you know, the Spark ETL and yeah, like, yes, I don't want to learn a new API. This is the same with Flink as well, right? Like why would, um, if Spark streaming is not the best and Flink has complex event processing and right, like that kind of thing. Well, Kafka, Kafka streams, it seems like it's really good for these like streaming just table updates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of, I mean, that seems like a slightly different domain than... And joining streams and... and jo- right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which seems which seems far removed from doing machine learning. Yeah, the iterative, right, like the incremental. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, even Spark Streaming plus Spark ML doesn't really do the incremental uh, like machine learning. There was one talk, one of my old coworkers at Databricks, and I pulled her into the Spark Tech Center um, at like IBM just recently too, about a year ago. Uh, yeah, so Holden, right? Like, do you know Holden Crow? Yeah, she was on the show. Cool. Uh, she actually did a really good talk. Uh, her and my other old coworker from IBM, uh, this guy, Seth, um, uh, they did streaming machine learning and they basically had to hack and this was all based on spark 2.0. So, you know, it's, it, it's uh, right, like the latest code base. They had to hack spark streaming. They had to hack, you know, spark ML. They had to do some weird stuff with data frames and data sets. And uh, so there's, there's quite a bit of work and I think they submitted a pull request, but uh, it's kind of just, you know, sitting out there. So, um, yeah, I know firsthand Databricks is planning to sort of beef up on, on that area, but yeah, they have to stabilize streaming first and get, you know, structured streaming built, and then they can start doing the incremental, really, online training and online serving, which is really, really hard. Yeah, and the, well, that's what you're concerned with, right? The online serving stuff, that's what you're, so I mean, these machine learning workshops that you're giving, or well, I don't want to say machine learning workshop, but these workshops on these data pipelines, Yeah, a lot of the idea is that it is this production model thing, right? Yeah. 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 So like we're using Redis, um, you know, I'm essentially following the Netflix uh, paradigm here for that. So yes, everything from, you know, the ability to scale out the serving, uh, the, yeah, right. Like the whole serving layer, I'm using Netflix OSS for that. Um, yeah, I'm using Redis. Uh, there's this project by the Netflix guys came out, I think the end of last year, it's called Dynamite. Yeah. Have you heard of this? 
I have not heard of that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like you mentioned Dynamo Paper earlier, um, right, like by the Amazon guys. They essentially uh, built right like dynamo um and uh but yeah so now right like you can plug in redis you can plug in memcache um you aren't and so right like they basically wanted the same semantics that they have with cassandra and with like dynamo db and that kind of thing but with these these like right, just like massively right like in memory caches right so this is how netflix serves things up um, they they do all the offline generation and then just you know push these huge maps into these Redis and like memcache tables right um, and there there's there's some work going on with like RocksDB where uh, people that are not active kind of get saved out to SSD to free up memory for right like the actual active people but um, the uh, yeah it's like the first iteration was just push out all of the generated data out to probably all these servers but that was starting to get pretty expensive so. But yeah, Dynamite um, gives you the whole cap theorem, right? So, yeah, you can tune the consistency based on your use case. So, talking more about what you are doing in these workshops, why don't you just explain what is the goal of these workshops? What happens during them? Like, who is coming to these workshops? Because, you know, I was just looking at your page and it's like, they're selling out like people are just going to these <laughs> workshops like crazy like clearly people actually want want to learn about about how to serve you know production users with machine learning data yeah, yeah. Uh, why don't you just walk me through what goes on in these workshops yeah i mean just to sort of back up uh you know why i i even started doing this and you know made this stuff public um you know yeah i tend to just kind of tinker around a lot and um yeah, let's see. When did this? I think this started last August. Um, I was working with a couple guys in San Francisco to build out sort of a reference implementation of the Smack stack, right? Uh, so, you know, Spark and Mesos, Akka, uh, Cassandra, Kafka. And um, we want the acronym to... kept growing. <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, yeah Pancake <laughs> Stack. Yeah, I, I somehow worked in the word stack in there as well because I, I just had so many technologies. Um, and so, Right, like the way I describe it is that this is my playground, right? And you know, someone I showed someone this, and they said, "Hey, yeah, this would be perfect for this Mac stack. Why don't we use this?" And I'm like, "All right, cool." Um, and so we had to add, you know, diagrams and sort of steps around it. So that that was the very, very first uh, like sort of iteration. Um, yeah, and then from there, I just wanted to sort of build out and get the serving layer back in there. So you know, get Redis, and I was just just yeah going back through all the old right, like Netflix uh, like blog posts and talking to my friends there and right, like how are you guys doing it now? What's different? Um, and yeah, so the goal is just to s- sort of expose people to uh, these different technologies and right, like where they fit in. Um, it's tough because with so many people coming, I mean, these workshops, uh, I think the biggest one was like 120 people. Um, we, you know, we had two projectors, we had like 10 TAs running around helping people. It was pretty fun. Um, but the, you know, and people that, that know Kafka don't want to hear about Kafka. They want to hear about, you know, TensorFlow, right? So it's it's tough to sort of go down the middle, you know, in these workshops. Everyone's always mad at me for something or really disappointed about something. So um, it's just something I've had to deal with. But 
it's to get people to think too more about the uh, production serving side of things, right? These, these things are difficult, right? Like a lot of data scientists I talk to don't know what happens after their pipeline ends, right? Like their version of production is, uh, you know, running it in this notebook, getting a model and then, right? Like the old handed over the wall to the like production engineer, data engineer or whatever. So so my uh, a listener to the show named Don Janja or Hanja, I think I, I don't know. He he was the one who recommended I email you and um, set up a show. So thanks oh, to him. Cool. But he thanks. yeah. So so I, so he said that um, th- I guess what goes on in the workshop is there's a big Docker image with all of these yeah. different technologies. <laughs> And That's at the huge. beginning, I guess everybody get everybody gets to pull them down or pulls down the Docker image and then just starts doing things. Yeah. So I I don't remember which workshop he was part of. If he was part of one of the early ones, it was a little bit chaotic. No, he, sure. I don't think he was part of one because I think he lives in in Asia somewhere. And but he hmm. just said he had heard about it or he'd watched some videos. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. We've exposed. I think Seattle. We exposed. Uh, it just basically comes down to, you know, if I can get someone to videotape it and then, um, right, yeah, and then can I follow up with them to actually push it out there? So, um, yeah, those two are surprisingly difficult to do. Uh, but, yeah, the uh, Seattle one, one of my friends had all the equipment and everything, so pushed it out there. Um, yeah, it's – and the sort of early, you know, very – well, for the Smackstack one, for example, uh, it was a pretty small image at the time. Um you know, now there's a lot of data sets, a lot of different data sets that we cover because it, it's become more and more data science-y. Um, and, you know, these like TensorFlow data sets are just huge, right? You know, the inception model and things like that. These are are not light. You know, these are in the gigabyte kind of range. So um, each person, though, ne- oh, so in the like early days, I used to have everyone install it on their laptop, right? And it was the, the old uh, Docker uh, that you know, required virtual box and, you know, all these shims and everything and all, all kinds of weird networking. Oh my. Yeah. So, and, and then, and then, so just so people know that the, what is in this stack of technologies, like how much, just how many things are. Yeah. Uh, the, the full playground, like I said, this is my playground. So right. Yeah. There's obviously stuff in here that we don't cover during the workshop or, um, you know, I'll, I'll at like lunchtime, I'll have, you know, people come up and ask me questions about different things, but, um, yeah. So pancake itself, actually, I have to remember myself cause I always forget <laughs> it's, uh, P is presto. So what was it? Well, yeah, let me just go through the acronym. Uh, P is presto. Netflix is big on presto. They by are. The way. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. And, and, not until I, I started seeing more and more talks and talking to more and more uh, of my friends back there, you know, they they love Presto. They prefer it to Spark SQL. It's just, um, you know, it's different use cases, right? But what what they're starting to do is use Presto for their ad hoc queries, right? So so these are queries that if they fail, if a node fails, that's fine. They'll just rerun the query, right? Yes, obviously, if you aren't taking in to consideration fault tolerance, um, right? Yeah, so Presto doesn't really care about fault tolerance right now, the version that they have. Uh, they just run the query and it, it's, you know, blazing fast, right? So Spark is more generic and does care about fault tolerance. So it has to do, you know, checkpoints and save save temporary files and things like that and make sure, you know, it's like saving lineage um, for the transformation so it can go back and, right, like restore an entire, uh, right, like node partition, things like that. So, um, 
Spark, yeah, ends up being a little bit slower for uh, the sort of ad hoc case and better for, you know, this the rather ETL or the machine learning generation. So, um, yeah, so they use uh, like Presto more during the day, right? Um, so, yeah, that's the P there. Uh, yeah, A, I think, is Twitter Algebraid, or I have a bunch of A's. I think Apache Arrow might even be in there. Uh, I started running out of... Um, yeah, N is NiFi. Yeah, have you, like, talked to anyone about NiFi? I have not. That was the first time I had seen that when I was mm-hmm. looking at your diagram with all these different technologies. Yeah, yeah. It's it's bigger on the East Coast, um, especially when I go to D.C. You know, it, like, came out of the NSA, uh, and six, I think three or four guys came out and started it this. Came out of the NSA. This is a piece of technology that came out of the NSA. Correct, correct. And uh, I think it, you know, it's eight years in the making. There's a really nice UI for it. Uh, it stands for Niagara Files, and the sort of master use case that that I always reference because I think it paints a pretty good picture is, um, you know, picture like the president, right? He's, you know, rolling around uh, in his, you know, big probably Cadillac, whatever he has. Um, and he's trying to figure out where to go. The driver's trying to figure out where to go. Is it, you know, just maps that he's looking at? No, it's going to be maps. It, it's going to be crime. It's going to be, you know, current events happening, things, you know, there's there's a whole ton of sources coming in. What's what's confusing about NiFi is people think of it sort of like a stream processing, you know, flow. Um, uh, but it, it it's more, it, it's more like, it's it's sort of earlier in the flow, and its target is Kafka, right? So, you know, these are like mobile devices, things like that, that uh, can like gather all this information. And um, since they've open sourced it, they've gotten more friendly with like S3 and um, really HDFS and really normal things that that um, you know are, are really more like open source and more really generally accepted than what was going on really behind the scenes at the NSA. So. Um, it, it, it's sort of a data collector. Um, people want to make it sound like Spark streaming and can do this complex, you know, processing and all that, but that's not what its main use case is for. It's hmm. yeah, more to just do routing and, um, yes, things like that. So I think the Hortonworks guys have been, ha- so yes, Hortonworks ended up buying this company that was formed out of the NSA, um, yeah, the creators of, the, of Relic NiFi. So I think they were only a separate company for about six months, and then uh, Hortonworks picked them up pretty quickly. So Wow, okay, I need to do a show on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can get you in touch. Uh, yeah, Joe. Oh, that Witt. would be great. Yeah, man. That would be great. Yeah, um, so so, so I, I want to talk a little bit more about, about Pipeline IO because that's what you're working on. So I'm looking at this model, uh, this, this diagram of all the different things that you cover in the workshop so it's basically like this basically is this is this workflow of how data gets added from end users basically to your data storage somewhere and then on the other end you have data scientists and data engineers that are building models based off of that data mm-hmm. and then that data gets served to served back to the end users as recommendations um, and then throughout this process, you've got um, machine learning training and uh, s- streaming data, data analysis, and um, you've got pictures of all these different technologies and how this architecture fits together. I think it would be too complex to discuss over a podcast um, to cover everything. But throughout this this uh, diagram, you have these little places in the diagram, in the workflow, 
where it says Pipeline IO. So Pipeline IO is this company that you're working at. What is Pipeline IO contributing to this workflow of getting data from users and serving recommendations? What is the technology that you're right. building? Right. Yeah. So there's uh, there's two main things that we're focused on. There, I think the diagram that you're looking at has four uh, boxes, right? That's kind of highlighted. Yeah. So the end goal is to just have continuous deployment, right? Um, yes, of these machine learning models. So it's not just recommendations, but, you know, could be decision trees. We're obviously talking to some of the bigger companies that, you know, are doing fraud detection and rally network, rally packet analysis, that kind of thing. So they have, you know, huge, huge trees. They're, they're starting to ask a lot of questions about TensorFlow and yeah, how do I get TensorFlow in here and uh, like continuously deploy? So, What's interesting is that there's companies like, uh, yeah, so Capital One actually had this really good talk this week um, uh, at Strata, and then companies right like Uber that that have continuous deployment for their machine learning in place. And picture it where the data scientist has their, uh, yeah, say that they're using right, like IPython. Um, they've gone through, they you know built their Spark model, built their TensorFlow model. They then commit that model into GitHub. And then from there, you know, just picture Jenkins, for example, which is um, most likely what we're going to go with. We, we're, we're looking at a couple options. Um, but yeah, so Jenkins uh, gets that trigger that's, that a new model has been pushed and it can package that up. It'll figure out, you know, based on the directory, which, uh, um, you know, yes, if it's TensorFlow, if it's Python-based, if it's, you know, C++-based, if it's Java-based, we'll package up the correct version, um, you know, and then push that. It'll build up a Docker image and then deploy it out as a, um, a single canary, right? So there would be one Docker container running, um, right next to a thousand other Docker containers that are, you know, serving up right, like the end user. And we slowly start to push traffic to it. And, and then we have dashboards and metrics and things like that, that the, the right, like data scientist can see themselves. So it's not a throw it over the wall. It's I've committed this thing, right? Like give me about a minute. And then here's this link to the, uh, you know, and showing the canaries, right? Like prediction performance versus the current, Right, like 1,000 cluster. Um, and just sort of keep an eye on these things. You know, uh, we're also giving them system metrics, right, like things like that, so they can make sure that if it's right, like JVM, it, it's not going to blow the heap and things like that. So um, there's, there, yeah. So that from a pipeline standpoint, that's where the name pipeline IO comes from is that, yeah, we want to give them continuous pipeline. So that's 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 awesome because there's obviously so much discussion about wanting to get continuous deployment throughout the organization. And um, so, how are 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 companies adopting this? Like, are they um, who or, or, or I guess yeah. a better a better a better question might be, um, you know how how are people doing it before? Were they just doing these like manual? like very manual processes where they deploy exactly. one of these containers and then they just like slowly route traffic and somebody has to spend their entire day uh, doing this? For sure, yeah. And the biggest uh, complaint too that I hear is that the production environment is different than their local development environment. So, uh, you know, and I think probably the diagram that you're looking at has a little X um, in front of the uh, like production the engineer. engineer. 
yeah. no production engineer, right? Right, right. So that's kind of the we're trying to get rid of the hand it over the wall and just sort of automate all this, right? So um, we've also been playing, uh, yeah. So we're doing code generation um, for the JVM and for C plus plus as well. So yeah, we can actually take the the Spark. like that spark model picture decision tree for example um we can get those decision points from you know that model and then it's super easy to just generate trees right it's just a big if statement um there's ways to collapse it and really further optimize it but to actually get just the really straight up code generation um yeah that's super easy and so that sort of takes that sort of uh Right, like brute force, or yes, yeah, so I guess kind of manual step of the right. This production engineer having to you know code in these weights into the linear regression, or you know these decision points themselves. So, mm. um, yeah. Uh, let me just look here real quick. Yeah. So, just oh yeah. So the way that they're doing it now, they hand it over the wall. Uh, it's you know slow, clunky. The like production environment is different potentially. So this production engineer, even his like local environment or his test environment, might have a different you know version of SciPy or NumPy or whatnot. Um, yeah, out in production. So with with these new Mac, uh, right, like Docker for Mac, Docker for Windows, um, and things like Kubernetes, right, like Minikube, right. That that's where you can actually run a like Kubernetes locally. Yes, you can have the exact same environment locally and then just sort of point it to the production cluster and say go right Hmm. now are people going to the workshop and then they're learning about the pancake stack or they're learning about whatever whatever technology they work with in the workshop and then they go back to their company and then they uh deploy that like or then they just go off on their own and they spin up their own pancake stack or, or, (laughs) or is it like they experience it and then they start to implement uh fractions of what they learn in the workshop and then exactly maybe they they get the idea for pipe they you know they get the uh they get the gist of pipeline in the workshop and then maybe they start to use pipeline at their company is that is that kind of how it how it works yeah yeah pretty much i mean um the a workshop is meant to sort of you know like get people thinking um yes people always come up at break and say oh yeah that's the exact problem that we're having right now this is great yeah i can't wait to see really how you solve it or um yeah so i i think the right like big takeaway like people from like home away for example it's right like um yeah it's uh this company similar to like airbnb based out of austin texas yeah Uh, yeah they came they they took away uh some of like the nlp stuff that that uh like we demo right um and then some of uh that locality sense of hashing some of the approximations things like that so yeah it's it just depends on what people are struggling with um and yeah, it, it's not really, I mean, yes, obviously it's one single Docker image. Uh, it, it's all configured to local host, you know, so I can kind of cheat that way. It, um, it's not meant to be pushed out into production and completely scale out. That's actually something uh, we've got really tasks that are ongoing about that sort of really breaking up this monolith into something um, that can scale. Right. So, um, but yeah, and then right, like the other big thing people tend to come away with is how to do this continuous training, right? So, yeah, that's the other little box where I think you're seeing pipeline IO is taking data straight off of Spark streaming these like mini batches and right, like using stochastic gradient descent um, on the the current uh, 
the right like current matrix um so these like item vectors right and then you have user vectors uh and then just sort of making small little changes to those so like throughout the day you can pick up trends and you know things like that so just having that flow in place like people might not want to use those exact same algorithms but they can now sort of really grok how this all flows together and then how it ends up going out in production and things like that so Mm. All right, Chris. Well, this has been a great conversation, uh, wide-ranging, and um, I find the pancake stack very interesting. <laughs> find, you know, your, your work, your talks are, are quite fascinating. I encourage people to check them out at advancedspark.com or pipeline.io. Um, thanks for coming on. Cool. Yeah, man, we have fun. We uh, at the very end, we always spin up a really big cluster, you know. Um, yes, each person gets their own, uh, right? Like typically GCE, uh, that's what I've been using. Each person gets their own eight core, fifty gig RAM instance, and they're completely isolated to that instance. And at the very end, we take all of that that horsepower and that memory, and we yeah make a big, huge Spark cluster. So I think there's some uh, like videos out there of this, but you know, half a terabyte. Uh, or, or, or yeah, yeah. So half a terabyte. We, I, I think we had like, uh, let's see, what eight? Uh, we had eight hundred cores. You know, something like that going on. So, yeah. Mm. But, so how many years do you think it'll be until <laughs> G, GCE yeah, is like, in, in wi- wider use than AWS? Yeah, you know it. From twenty fifteen, I think fifteen years. Fifteen years. Yeah. Um, I mean, Google's going at it pretty aggressively. I think they need to sort of beef up their, you know, public facing side a little bit and go beyond just the two or three people that they have evangelizing, but <laughs> it's tough because a lot of people have, you know, they're, they're starting to use more Lambda and things that are, uh, right. And like Kinesis and things like that. I mean, I, I yeah, sure. But I mean, Google's, them. Google's got the, Google's got the, the data flow and the Kubernetes stuff, which is like, and the TensorFlow stuff that is. That seems to me like a more compelling long game bet than Lambda. I mean, Lambda's great. Yeah. Lambda's interesting. Kinesis <laughs> yeah. is really interesting. But uh, I'll take my, my I'll take my 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 uh, my data center as a service um, uh, over that any day. I think. Yeah. What's interesting is Kubernetes one four came out this week, and they've got more and more. It, it's still in like alpha phase, but like you can see kind of where they're going, where the community is going, um, which is you know hybrid cloud, right? So uh, without Docker. Yeah. So right, like with Docker. Uh, yeah. Right. Like with Kubernetes, basically just just treat them just like data centers, right? And then on premise as well, so you can actually go really anywhere with these things. So yeah. Yeah. You go know, totally. Well, what I mean was like the. It sounds like the uh, Docker constraint is getting factored out, and I don't know. Maybe we'll see Google's own container. <gasps> oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Right. 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 Gotcha. So anyway, all right. Well, that's for another show. Clearly. Um, <laughs> Chris, Chris, it's been a pleasure. Um, hope to hope to meet you in person at some point. Excellent. Yeah, me too. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.